Britain's, uh, you, let's think of it as UK PLC's reputation internationally has suffered quite a knock in the last three years. And that doesn't matter whether you're pro-Brexit or pro-Remain. Everybody's thought we've gone a bit bonkers, we haven't had a stable government, etc., etc. We need to restore our reputation, and indeed, if we're going to get the trade deals we want to get, we need to use our soft power to make people think we are an important country. We need to improve our brand as a country. And the BBC is, is our most important soft power export. It is the most extraordinary reputation around the world. Episode 9. A conversation with Sir Peter Bazalgette. Hello. For this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins, I've come to the offices of ITV in the heart of Chancery Lane in London to talk to Sir Peter Bazalgette. Sir Peter has had a long and productive career in the arts, both high and low. He is a TV executive described as the most influential man in British broadcasting. He bought Big Brother to Channel 4, for which Clinton Letts of the Daily Mail described him as one of 10 worst Britons. And he was responsible for creative formats such as Ready Steady Cook, Changing Rooms and Grand Force, which went on to become international hits. Currently, he is non-executive chairman of ITV, as well as being the former president of the Royal Television Society, he was previously on the board of Channel 4, Chief Creative Officer of Endemol and Deputy Chair of the National Film and Television School. He's been a non-executive director of the Department Culture, Media and Sport, Chair of the English National Opera and Chair of Arts Council England and has done a lot of influential work framing and promoting the creative industries. He's also the author of The Empathy Instinct, How to Create a More Civil Society. Ours is a wide-ranging conversation, taking in the future of the BBC, the role of the arts post-Brexit, funding in times of moral purification, repatriation of museum artefacts, and how to make a case to government for the arts. And just note, at the start of the interview, Peter's crisp blue shirt rustles a little, and we haven't been able to edit that out, but it soon goes away, so stick with us. I don't know, my mother was a musician, so I grew up with music and was pretty familiar with the classical canon. And then you become aware of other stuff as you go on. Uh, the first single I ever bought was What Do You Want If You Don't Want Money by Adam Faith. So I wasn't against popular music, but um, no, I grew up with classical music. At some point I got involved in English National Opera. I was asked to join the board and then I chaired English National Opera, so I chaired an opera company. And then I also, in the end, chaired a steam museum, uh, which was, you might say, a matter of hereditary uh, principle. Because, Explain um, what you mean by that. Yeah. So I've got a great-great-grandfather who was a Victorian civil engineer, uh, Joseph Bazalgette, who designed London's sewage system, cured London of cholera, designed the embankments, essentially created the modern... was one of the people who created the modern city of London. And Joseph Bazalgette's sewage system for London built with money borrowed from two chancellors of the Exchequer, one being Disraeli, the other Gladstone, at different times, relied on gravity to propel the ordure from the west to the east. And he built sewers parallel with the Thames, because the Thames had become a stinking cesspool, and people were drawing their drinking water out of it and dying of cholera. And he built these parallel sewers to take London's ordure, as I say, from west to east, 
and it used gravity to propel it, so every mile it would get slightly lower. So when it got out to the mouth of the Thames in the north at Abbey Mills, which is in the shadow of the Olympic Park, in the south at Cross Ness, it was about 40 foot below ground. It needed steam engines to pull it up once or twice a day and dump it in the river at high tides that went into the North Sea. Not a solution for today, but a solution for then. Yeah. One of those pumping stations, both still exist, is Cross Ness. And I got connected with a small group of retired steam engineers who realized that the four rotative steam beam engines in this derelict house that had not been used since the early 50s were the biggest ever built in the world. They were a magnificent piece of industrial history. And they started restoring one. And that was great. But they had no idea how they were going to fund it, what the future plan was, would it be a museum, how do you restore the grade one industrial building. So we needed to create a board, create a structure, create a charity, create an arts organisation, etc. And we did that over 15, 20 years. We raised in the end about five million. And where did you get it from? Uh, we got it from Heritage Lottery Fund, from Thames Water and from various other donations. And um, in the end, it, it, there it is now. You can visit it. It's got some lovely electronic, uh, now, um, state-of-the-art exhibits. And the four engines were named after the members of the royal family. You see, those machines, those engines, those steam engines, they were for pumping shit. But Victorians were so proud of public works, they named those shit-pumping machines after the four members of the royal family. Victoria, Albert, Prince Consort, and two of the children. Prince Consort is fully restored. That's the one you can see in steam, and Victoria is halfway through being restored. God bless her. That's amazing. They, Victorians also built all those public lavatories as well in London. And well, so um, they did, and of course the classic thing was the Great Exhibition of 1851, yeah. where the phrase spend a penny came from, the first public lavatories for people who needed, when they were visiting in Hyde Park, the Great Exhibition. Yeah. And you had the great flourishing of museums and libraries... It was a flowering of, I think, what they would have called arts and commerce, wasn't it? That was why the V&A was there. And it seemed to be underpinned by this sense of being world leader, great confidence, belief in progress, backed by science, science museum, yeah. uh, design at the V&A. So it had a strong industrial, commercial element to it. And... It isn't so different today, except that we've had to get back to that. So I've spent personally the last 10 years campaigning for and popularising the idea of the creative industries. Which I, are, so that's almost like jargon. So how, what would you describe as creative industries? It is almost like jargon, uh, but it's a useful piece of jargon. Yeah. So the idea, the construct of the uh, creative industries was um, created in 1997 by uh, people like Chris Smith and David Putnam. They were Labour Party, were they both It Labour was the Party? new Labour government, and uh, Chris Smith was the DCMS minister, and, and, and David Putnam became an education minister about the same time, relatively briefly. But, of course, he's a filmmaker and, yeah. and had worked in advertising before that. And they spotted that there were these subgroups like film, television, radio, advertising and marketing, fashion, video games, I could go on, yeah. um, which had a connection. And they defined this sector called creative industries. They defined what was part of it. And then they started to monitor the value. And we did a lot of work in the last 10 years about how it's growing. In fact, it's now worth uh, about 101 billion a year in its turnover. 
It's about 5% of the economy, and it's growing about three times as fast as the, as the general rate of growth in the economy. Now, now that I, sounds brilliant if you're talking to government and you're trying to get the arts sector some money and some support. Are there any dangers with it? Is there a danger, say, you describe it so broadly, it could be cooking or knitting. I think some people took the piss out of the Arts Council for including knitting. Is there a danger of that? And is there a danger then of instrumentalising it, saying it's going to produce you money, it's going to produce value? So um, one of the things that I think was a strategic success of myself and my colleagues when I was at the Arts Council for four years, which I left three years ago, was connecting arts and culture to the creative industries and getting them recognised as, if you like, the incubation for the creative industries. Now, this is not to say that the purpose of arts and culture and investing public money in it or anybody else's money in it is for economic benefit. It is to say that you do it for uh, social, cultural, and you could even argue democratic reasons, but there is an economic benefit from it, and it would be foolish not to point that economic benefit out. And by connecting arts and culture to the general uh, rhetoric around creative industries, and I admit some of it is polemical, uh, I think we've reached a stage where it won't get cut again. Now, in the early years of the coalition government, arts funding was cut by 30%. Well, the Arts Council was cut by 30%, and general arts funding was cut by about 15%, and the National Museums and everything else. And I don't think that'll happen again. I think we've completely changed the conversation. So I don't mind being criticised for an instrumental argument if it has a good outcome. OK. That leads us on to arts funding. So the state does give money to the arts. What about corporate sponsorship? That seems to be in a tricky situation at the moment. Uh, BP, SACLA, I mean, there's a whole kind of concern about that type of funding. Where do you stand on it? Well, I think large and small companies should want to invest in arts and culture, which is part of what makes life worth living for their employees. It's part of what makes great places for people to live and work in. And so as a general rule, I think companies should make that social step of supporting arts and culture, see the benefit of it. And when they do so, I think the arts and cultural organisations that are funded by them should be utterly transparent about it and stick it up on the wall that it's, being, that it's happening. Now, do you think some they have to be? Because there are some donors who don't want corporations and individuals who don't want, don't want the fuss, actually. They don't want the attention. The criticism is often that they want their reputation laundered, but not all of them do. No, that might be OK for an individual, but I think for a company, you should be very clear. Uh, an, an arts organisation, if it's being sponsored by a company, should be very, very transparent. And if a company said, we want to give you this money anonymously, I don't think they should accept it, really. I think you should have transparency. So the, the discussion around the kind of moral purity of the arts isn't just related to corporate sponsorship, it's related to artists. There's a whole general nervousness, and I wonder where you stand on this kind of moral purification today. Show me an artist who wasn't a sinner. Artists, almost by definition, have to be people of the most extraordinary egomania. And as often as not, they're selfish bastards. And they do terrible things. Read William Fever's latest book on Lucy and Freud. What a great artist. What an absolute bugger. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, do we give them permission, though? No. We, we separate their art from their personal behaviour. If, if it's great art, for whatever reason, however you define that, we give it proper accord. But we don't ignore the fact that they themselves necessarily... We, we're very interested in who they were, what their attitudes were. Um, Eric Gill 
one of the foremost sculptors uh, of the mid-war period, an amazing leader in, in design thinking. Very, very unpleasant and unsavoury family affairs. Do we take his statue down? No, we don't. Of course not. Reinterpretation of art and artists is fine. And, uh, you know, slightly making a similar but not identical point, you know, the Rhodes statue in Oxford, don't take it down, give it a new plaque. And you know. who would write the plaque? Well, um, who writes history? We all have a different version, but, you know, in broad terms, society moves on. Cecil Rhodes doesn't have many defenders. He was a man of great vision, enormous enterprise, and he did some terrible things in, in the colonial times, and we need to reevaluate it. So that's fine. So I don't think it's difficult getting... It may be difficult agreeing particular wording, because, yes. you know, you'll, you'll get a camel, not a horse, out of a committee trying to word something. But in terms of the drift and the general positioning, I think society's in, in a place of accord. Where are you then on restitution? Because that's often described as returning, writing the wrongs of history, if you return an artefact, say the Benin Bronzes, to Nigeria. So um, the first thing is that most of our museums have got pieces that were, have come from other parts of the world, which of course is part of their glory and, and helps us understand the rest of the world. And all of them were acquired in different ways. Some of them were bought legitimately, some of them were raped and pillaged, if I can put it that way. And, and some of them may have been bought, but not by people who were actually permitted to sell them and so on. But sometimes they were derived from countries and regimes that don't even exist anymore. So it's, it's a very complex yeah, so picture. So, so the first point is that all our museums, and, and I know for a fact they haven't all done this, and some of them may feel they don't have the resources to do this, but they need to do a proper audit of everything they've got, the circumstances in which it was acquired. Then you start to look at what you do about it. Now, it's become one of the things that's become clear is that human remains are in a category of their own mm. and have extreme sensitivity. And the return of human remains, for instance, to Aboriginal human remains and other Aboriginal artefacts, recently from Manchester, actually, yes. was an extraordinarily good and positive and sensitive thing to do. And in the hierarchy of put-upon peoples, the Aborigines come pretty high up that hierarchy. What happened to them in uh, Australia in between, you know, 1750 and, and 1950 is just a terrible, terrible story. And if you visited Australia, you know how they're trying to, trying to just re-establish their identity as a race. I don't disagree with you. My PhD was on the whole issue of repatriation of human remains. Um, my concern at times is that culture is being asked to do quite a lot. You know, objects is being, are, are being asked and human remains are being asked to solve problems that are long-standing and historical and occasionally culture is kind of just put there and everything else is abandoned. Do you see? I do. Um, do you know something? That's a really positive thing. It's not a problem. The fact that we have museums with artefacts in them that are being asked to do a lot. Um, be the custodians of our identity, tell us about the rest of the world, and provide us with something to do with kids on a particularly <laughs> difficult rainy a day crash, or whatever. I mean, these, this is all good. We should demand more of our museums. And if that's one of the things we're demanding of them, and the fact Does it that, not burden them? Well, no, because the more people 
see significance in the items in a museum, the more important those items are and the more brilliant it is the museum's got them. Okay, well, just to push you on this, the significance they see is almost like they're, they're no longer objects of enlightenment, they're objects of atonement. So, and you're no longer looking at what they meant to the people who made them in, you know, 500 years ago. You're asking them to do something for us now. Isn't that a bit narcissistic? I think that's um, a very good point. Um, I have, I'm very dubious about politicians today making formal apologies mm -hmm. for something they couldn't have affected or, or done anything about. To regret something, you can regret the slave trade. And one of my ancestors, uh, I think he was a great, 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 great uncle, in fact an uncle of Sir Joseph Bazalgette, was in that enormous register that was published uh, about five years ago of all the people who were compensated in 1837 when the slave, when the slave, slave ownership, well, the slave yeah. trade was ended in 1805 or 1807, but the slave ownership was abolished 30 years later. People forget to make the distinction. Right. And, and people were being compensated. For, and uh, somebody asked me, one of the newspapers asked me to make an apology. And I said, look, I really regret the entire slave trade. And I regret I have an ancestor who was part of it. But to ask me to apologize is asking me to in, 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 indulge in humbug because I'm apologising for something I can't affect, yeah. I didn't do. Yeah, it serves as action and responsibility. So I do think you need to be careful with your choice of words. And I, so, yes, um, I take your point about putting too much of a burden or losing sight of what the real cultural significance of those items are. I think that's a very fair criticism. Well, it does take us on to your book, The Empathy Instinct. So it's published in 2017. Why then? And what were you trying to say about the arts in that book? There are a couple of reasons for my being interested in it. Um, one was when we were trying, after the cuts in art funding in the early years of the coalition government, and then I was at the Arts Council, and we were trying to put together the best arguments for public investment in arts and culture. And I sort of want, and I, everybody I spoke to, including ministers and civil servants, were clueless on the subject. You know, they were doing it, but they couldn't articulate to me why. Mm. And if you can't articulate why, how can you maintain it or increase it or argue for it? And I thought people in the arts community were quite lazy on the subject too. And I wanted to know what the whole picture was. And you know, in the end, we came up with this thing that was um, about intrinsic benefits, things like identity, entertainment, enlightenment. The kind of truth and beauty. You could stuff. say. There's a slightly I sort of, like that. Slight, <laughs> you don't like that so much. Well, slightly it? Ruskin, but yeah, without the God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then social benefits. Educational was a third point, and, and, and economic was a fourth. Yeah. And, and that's so in that first one of intrinsic, I, when we were brainstorming and writing all over pads of paper in the office, about three of us were sort of putting all this together, I just wrote the phrase empathetic citizens. I knew what I meant by it. I knew that arts and culture tell human stories and enable you to put yourself in other people's shoes. And how do you think it stands up now? So we're in 220. What do the arts need to do to heal the divisions of yeah. today? I think it's more relevant now than it was three years ago. Why is that? Because I think Britain has been through a bit of a trauma for three years. And you could say that the catalyst rather than the cause, the root cause, but the catalyst was this whole Brexit thing, which beyond party political lines, um, divided the country by age, geography, wealth, you know, it was just, mm. and, and families were divided. Mm. And people were so angry with each other. I think if you take, for instance, uh, James Graham, who's a very good writer, drama writer, 
who wrote the drama about the Brexit on With Channel 4. Benedict Cumberbatch. With Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dominic Cummings, yeah. the man of our age. Yeah. And if you go back and look at that drama, it's only a year ago on Channel 4, yeah. you will see in it that James Graham has that, I hope he doesn't feel I'm elevating him too far, he has that slightly Shakespearean quality of not really judging, but saying here is all of humanity, here are the good bits, here are the bad bits, mm. and spotting you know, how we behave and interact and so on. No, but, I agree, there was a very good moment with the focus groups, where, which had Dom Cummings kind of leading these focus groups, and it allowed people to speak. And I think one of the problems with the Brexit one of the problems with what happened with the Brexit debate was that Brexiteers are depicted as racist idiots and nobody likes to be called that. Yeah, and so he didn't do that. There's a thing in politics, and there's a sort of version of it with the Brexit argument. In politics, people on the left think people on the right are immoral. People on the right think people on the left are misguided. There's always been that strange mismatch. And in the Brexit argument, there was something similar going on um, in that people who were Remainers thought that Brexiteers were mad and reckless and sort of literally bonkers and possibly racist as well. Whereas Brexiteers thought Remainers were just a bit stick in the mud. You're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins, and I'm talking with Sir Peter Bezeldet, the TV executive described as the most influential man in British broadcasting. He's a former chair of Arts Council England and of English National Opera, and he is currently the non-executive chairman of ITV. You can find out more about our guest, Sir Peter Bezeldet, on the links on our episode page, as well as on Instagram and Twitter on our account, which is at Behind the Museum. So is there a problem, or what would we do about it, with the fact that most people in the arts voted Remain? Is that a problem still today? Do we need positive discrimination? <laughs> no, uh, we don't need that, but we, we need um, people in the arts in the way that James Graham does and television drama is an art form to think about the whole country and all the ranges of opinions just as earlier we were discussing the sensibilities of people who feel that they have not had history written their history written but somebody else's history has been written and they are the victims of that story you've got all sorts of different points of view and communities across the country and you can agree or disagree with them but you should listen to them and so yes our works of art should do that too. And there is a, a risk that if most of our art is produced and funded in this um, metropolitan bubble where people voted Remain, where Jeremy Corbyn was king, and I, I'm not a member of any political party, I make no, but you know, they thought recently they were going to win the election. They were on the day, well, you know, it's all going very well. It wasn't because they weren't listening to the whole country. And they weren't seeing. And um, for, for right, rightly or wrongly, that's not a party political point I'm making. And I think, to be fair, there's a lot of it, that sort of thing going on. So if you look at what Rufus Norris is doing at the National Theatre, he is trying to open the doors of the National Theatre to lots of new voices and new writers. Mm -hmm. And he's got a much more challenging repertoire. And um, he's gradually changing the audience that's going to. And if you go there now, you'll see a different faces and different ages, different ethnicities in the audience than you were before. Now, that's all positive. That's what mm -hmm. we have to work very hard to do. We have to be quite acute. Not, we don't have to agree with everybody, but we have to acknowledge them. Well, it takes us on to broadcasting. And we're, we're talking, actually, the week that Tony Hall, the DG of the BBC, announced that he's going to resign. 
And I wonder what you think about the future of the BBC, given what we were just saying about needing to not just be a metropolitan bubble, which it can be, which it has been. Does the BBC have a future as something that's funded by the licence fee? The essence of public service broadcasting is programmes with a public purpose. And that public purpose could probably best be described as having three main elements to it. Democracy and informed citizenry, uh, which is informed by trusted and reliable news and information. More important in the digital age and the era of fake news and the echo chamber of the internet than probably in the past. Secondly, cultural. Uh, you know, whether you look at soap operas or dramas or whatever else, you're looking at essentially an investment in the national conversation. And if you look at homegrown dramas and soap operas on television, you will find all sorts of social issues that we think about and care about unpacked there in the storylines. And then thirdly, economic in that the BBC is a very important investor in the future generations of talent that feed into the creative industries. So I I'm, think it's a very important institution and it has this other important thing because Britain's, uh, you, let's think of it as UK PLC's reputation internationally has suffered quite a knock in the last three years. And that doesn't matter whether you're pro-Brexit or pro-Remain. Everybody's thought we've gone a bit bonkers, we haven't had a stable government, etc., etc. We need to restore our reputation, and indeed, if we're going to get the trade deals we want to get, we need to use our soft power to make people think we are an important country. We need to improve our brand as a country. And the BBC is, is our most important soft power export. It is the most extraordinary reputation around the world. It doesn't matter who you speak to. You know, Gorbachev, when he was, had a coup against him, was listening to the BBC. Aung San Suu Kyi used to listen to the BBC when she was under house arrest. It's a complete cornucopia of brilliance, actually. Anyway, so all of those things are valuable for the BBC, but the BBC's content is distributed both online and in the schedule. Uh, the habits of younger viewers are changing. Many fewer of them watch scheduled stuff. Mm. And when they want to consume content online, they can choose everything from Netflix to YouTube. It's a fantastic time to be a consumer of content. This makes uh, the BBC's claim to universality fraying at the edges. And if it's claimed universality phrase at the edges, can you have a compulsory licence fee to fund it? And that is the debate that's going to happen over the next uh, few years. And what do you think? Well, um, what I think is that I'm not going to give you an answer to precisely how it should be funded, but I think for, for all the reasons I've said, that a mature democracy should find a way of ensuring the funding of programmes with a public purpose made by Brits, for Brits, about Brits, in the increasingly international thing that's going on, is, is really valuable. And we should find a way of funding it. So we need a solution to future-proof it. It might be a smaller organisation. It might be a bigger one. It's a perfectly legitimate debate. And I'd make one other point. If there's ever another world war, it's not going to be a nuclear conflict. It's going to be a cyber conflict. And any country would be unwise not to have underpinned both the means of distribution in its country and what is pro-democratic and pro-society content on that means of distribution. And I think the BBC is a very important cornerstone of that. So I think when everybody gets over their excitement of the general election and politicians stop throwing brickbats and mark that they're both throwing brickbats yes. from left and right. Yes, they're both attacking the uh, We need to realise we have something of great value here, but it will have to change. What about the rise of subscription services and the impact upon commercial terrestrial 
channels such as ITV. What sort of impact is that having? Well, um, famously, uh, Martin Sorrell, when he ran WPP, the media conglomerate, called Google first a frenemy. And Netflix and Amazon are frenemies. Because on the one hand of an evening, Netflix is competing for viewers with ITV and BBC and Channel 4. But on the other hand, uh, it's co-producing brilliant shows with us. ITV is producing a massive show in America called Snowpiercer, which was based on that original movie called Snowpiercer. And it's a series. And we co-produce it with Netflix. You wouldn't want all your business to be that way. And I won't go into the detail. But um, look, so they, they are providing. And Sky is investing a huge amount more in content now. And it's buying some studios. And it, it made uh, co-funded that series Chernobyl last mm -hmm. year, which is an absolutely brilliant series. I was particularly delighted by Chernobyl because I chair the board of, of trustees of the Bailey Gifford Nonfiction Book Prize. And our winner two years ago was the book about so Chernobyl. And it absolutely was brilliant things for the sales of the book as well. So it was perfect. But no, so. But it shows you that the arts reinforce it. That's nonfiction, that's reinforced by television. And they kind of they yeah. reinforce each other. They there's don't necessarily a, detract from each there's other. There's a symbiosis there. Yeah. OK, uh, I have to ask you about Big Brother. What, what are your thoughts on the kind of impact of Big Brother on society? Well, its impact on society now is minimal. I mean, it's sort of not on, I don't think it's on air in the UK anymore. It's probably on in a few other countries. But you could argue. And that, you're going to argue. <laughs> that reality television is now kind of mainstreamed across all the channels. Yeah. Look, it's just one of the ways we make TV. Uh, it, the origins of it are very simple. We used to make things called documentaries. And people went out, and we still make documentaries, and good for, good for the people who do. But they went out to make a documentary, and it was a one-off idea. And when you started shooting, you didn't quite know what you were going to get. And then you had that one program which you edited and put out. That's not very good for sort of ratings or guarantees of you know, drama or whatever. So the reality show essentially took the documentary and formatted it by putting people in a particular place and getting them to interact and following the story with that, of how they interact with documentary techniques. But look, no, I'm, I'm very proud of uh, Big Brother. By the way, I didn't create it. I brought it to this country. It was invented in Holland. But look, um, at the turn of the century in, in 2000, it started in 1999 in Holland and in the UK in 2000. It, we were in the middle of the first uh, dot-com boom, the internet excitement. It was a property that combined the internet, TV, and the telephone. So it was a sort of early convergent thing. Over its time, you know, lots of people dismissed it as trash television. But it was interesting how it was essentially told human stories, whether you, you know, like it or not, that's what it did. And so uh, we had uh, a gay winner of series two. We had one winner who was a transsexual. We had another winner who was a Tourette syndrome. And these were people who were sort of caricatured and demonized by the tabloids when they first appeared. And when the public watching, and it's a popularity contest, essentially, yeah. for the voting, discover the humanity behind the stereotype, they voted them winners. They loved them. They became heroes mm -hmm. for a while. Uh, so it wasn't all antisocial. And then finally, I think it played an important role in what I would call um, turning viewers into people who are media savvy. Now, any kid now who has an iPhone and shoots their own video and edits it and sticks it on YouTube and understands something that 
20 years ago we didn't understand in general, which is that that television news program, that documentary, are, are the truth. Yeah. Well, no, I think somebody shot something and they decided where to point the camera. They then edited nine-tenths or nineteen-twentieths of the material out and created a narrative of their own choosing from the material they had. And it was their version. It's a subjective thing, program making, not an absolute truth. And Big Brother pen and tellered the whole thing. It showed how it was done. Because people would watch it live on the video channel, uh, 18 hours a day if they were so inclined. And then at 10 o'clock, they'd see a one hour of edited material. And then we'd get these emails saying, you misrepresented X. And, goes, and yes, that's how TV's yeah. made. So now, it sort of dethrones yeah, institutions. It was, it was a paragon of media literacy. And right up, uh, leading us up to the internet age, yes. really. And how do you see the internet age impacting upon the arts? Is it a good thing? Oh, that small question. I know. <laughs> I know you've thought about it. I know you've thought about it. Look, I think I'll say two things as succinctly as possible. The first is the internet is a, an almost infinite means of distribution. So in that sense, it's a great thing. Isn't it a great thing that I can go onto YouTube and access any dance company demonstrating what they do, if that's what I'm interested in, at the, at the touch of a button. Or that I can go into a cinema and watch uh, National Theatre live when 300 people are sitting in the Dorfman Theatre, but on the night it goes live, 100,000 people can access it around the world. That's, these are just things that are mind-bogglingly brilliant. The, the dark side of the internet is that, and we know what the benefit, there are so many benefits beyond arts and culture, but it is, turning into a, it is turning into something that has many antisocial facets. Whether you're talking about the abuse of our personal data, whether you're talking about the distribution platforms refusing to admit their publishers, so they will distribute, I don't know, radical videos or extreme porn or whatever, without saying they have responsibility, though they're gradually easing towards taking responsibility. And there's all sorts of other things to do with it. And so one of the big challenges we have in society now, I mean, if you think of our waking hours, we're probably online. Too much. We are, but let's say we're online 20 to 30 percent of our time. Yeah, easily, yeah. Right. So that means the Internet is now part of society. Yeah. And what do we do society for the common good? We regulate it. And the big challenge for society at the moment is how do you regulate the Internet? And that's content regulation. Well, it's everything. It's, it's how do you regulate it so that it isn't antisocial and kids don't see stuff you don't mm. think is appropriate for their age group. But um, it's, uh, it's other sorts of, uh, of regulation as well. It's regulation about why do they sell fake impacts in advertising, because they do. 20% are generated by bots somewhere mm. in Russia. Yeah. Um, it's um, regulation about what tax they pay. As companies, they want their employees in countries to have health and education, but do they pay their proper corporation tax? It's about regulation. Google has about a 90% share of paid search. When have we ever allowed a company to have that dominant position in a marketplace? It's multifaceted. It's economic, it's social, it's political. It's, yeah. it's multifaceted, and nobody has the answer, and we're just edging towards it. But we will do it, and the Internet will be regulated for the health of society. And it needs to be done beyond the nation-state. That's one of the That is one of the complexities. Yeah. So if you think you want one particular company to pay proper tax, but it's, it can just move its domicile to another country, or if it's churning the material out from a country where you can't touch them and get them to... Yes, this is very complicated. So it's, it's, it's going to happen, 
but it's not easy. And it may depend quite a lot of it on who's president of the United States and when. Yes. But the other bit is only one country in the world has successfully regulated the internet. It's called China. Is that where you want to live? No. Do you want a social credit score? No. So I wouldn't do very regulating well the, the internet score. in keeping with the tenets of a liberal democracy, you could say, is the biggest challenge of all. And flourishing the art. And the arts do need free expression to flourish. They do. Um, I always used to say, uh, when people are saying, oh, arts, you know, either attacking us or the Arts Council when I was there, um, I, one particular, I remember there was a sculptor in smoke. And he was for the Liverpool Triennial, he was going to put this sculpture of smoke over the river, Mersey, and it didn't work. And that was sort of 300 grand down the drain. And then it didn't work again, another 300 grand. Down the drain. And a government minister said, you must have an investigation immediately. I can see the Daily Mail say, Arts Council money goes up in smoke, it was going to say. <laughs> but I always used to say to everybody, today's outrage is tomorrow's mainstream. And so it, it, one proper function of public money is to do outre things in the arts, to mm. risk things mm. and push the envelope because things we regard as standard, like reality telly, for instance, were once shocking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. Do subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please do give us a review. It helps us find new listeners. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and hosted by Tiffany Jenkins. It was recorded by Nikki Barringer and the producer was Jack Fillimore.